When you go through this list, I started going through here. I want to read these verses first because this is important to build the context of this statement about the fruits of the Spirit. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. The Spirit wants to be in control too. That's not a negative lusting. That's a desire for control. Desire for control can be good or bad. It depends on what is desiring to have control. God desires to have control. That's not evil. But when your flesh desires to have control, that is evil. It depends on who the source is that's having that desire. God wants to have control over you. The spirit that God has put inside of you, if you're spirit-filled, is wrestling against you and your will. There's got to be a place where your will gives in to God's will. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Now that's talking about something even deeper yet. That means there doesn't need to be a regulated exercise of your faith if you truly are surrendered to the spirit. You get to a point, saints, where your spirit is so one with God's, you don't need any checklist of what to do and not to do. Do you realize it's the spirit that'll bring us to that point? Let me show you a simple demonstration of this. You know the scriptures we talk about frequently in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that are alluding to, by the way, the baptism of the Holy Ghost when it talks about the fact that he's going to put a new heart within them. He's going to take away the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And by that, it's not fleshly. It just means a living, beating heart, a spirit-driven heart. And that he is going to put his spirit in them. And they're not going to need anything else to guide them. Now, that doesn't mean you can just throw all the rules out in the sense of your present state. You know when there is no longer a need for a legal system of this is what you must do and this is what you must not do? When you are so led by the Spirit that you don't need God to have to give you a checklist of what would be the wrong thing to do. You're so in tune with God. That wasn't even possible under the Old Testament. Under the Old Testament period, they had to have a list of regulations because they didn't have that kind of harmonious possibility for a relationship with God. Under the New Testament, we are born again of the Spirit. And we've had our hearts circumcised. And we're supposed to grow in Christ to the point where we mature and start to produce the fruits of the Spirit. If you had all the fruits of the Spirit living and operating inside of you, you wouldn't need any regulations. You wouldn't need anybody telling you what to do. Because if you were driven by love, that alone would cover most things you could possibly do wrong. Now there'd still be individuals that would have such a lack of knowledge that they would not understand. Here's where you got to understand there's more than one kind of love. It's not just love for self. In fact, it's not love for self at all. What did Jesus say the two greatest commandments were? Love the Lord your God as are your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a lot of people that love their neighbor and they say, thus we should be fine with all the foul things that are going on in society because I'm just showing love for my neighbor. We just want to have love for one another, right? You have to have love for God. Love for God defines everything else. And if you love God, you'll do His commandments. Just like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If God's commandments say something is wrong, it doesn't matter if you like it. If everybody around you likes it, it doesn't matter if it makes the neighbors mad that you don't like it. They ought to know you don't like it because you love them enough. You want them to be in relationship with God, saints. Now the works of the flesh are manifest and it gives this list. I'm not going to go through each of these. We talk about each one, but you notice these are acts of sin. Adultery is an act of sin. Fornication is an act of sin, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and so on. These are actions of sin. I want you to think about this for a minute because when you get to the next thing, when it lists the fruits of the Spirit, those are internal things. Isn't it interesting that when God contrasts these two, He shows all these external sins and then when He gets the things that He wants to develop, He starts with the internals. You know why? Because if you get the fruits of the Spirit working in your life, it'll control the externals. If you've got the fruit of the Spirit working in your life, you're not going to commit adultery. If you've got the fruits of the Spirit being developed in your life, you're not going to commit fornication. You're not going to be unclean, and we can go on down through the list. 
You won't be committing those kind of sins if the fruits of the Spirit are truly being developed in your life. After he makes that list, he says, of the which, after this list, I tell you, of which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Wait a second, I thought you could just make some claim at one point in your life and you're going to get the kingdom of God. He just said, if you've got envyings and murders and drunkenness, revelings, such like, there's some of the others on the list. If you've got some of those things working, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That's why it's so important we develop the fruits of the Spirit, because they will keep those things from developing. You won't have those kind of actions if the fruits of the Spirit are developing in your life. They'll control the kind of works that you do. They won't be works of evil. They'll be works of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, why do you say there is no law? Well, you could take that as literally as it says it, that there's nothing that could stand against it to argue that you shouldn't be doing this. Who in the right mind would say, don't be temperate? Our society. You know, as our society right now tells you it's a crazy thing to be temperate. Who in the world would argue that meekness is a bad quality or love or some of these other things in this list? But the other side of that is there isn't even a law necessary once those fruits have been produced. You know why? Because those fruits are controlling your actions. If you've got those things working in you, you'll be doing exactly what God wants and you'll be resisting exactly what God wants you to resist. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another and envying one another. Do you think you can walk in the Spirit and not produce good works? Could you possibly make the case that someone's walking in, being led up, or living in the Spirit, and carrying on carnally at the same time? Do you think somebody out there that's doing some foul and wicked thing, you could look at them and say, because that they repented of their sins 20 years ago, right now they're in the Spirit while they're doing that. No, they're not in the Spirit. Let's even be more specific. Are they being led of the Spirit when they go do some evil? Are they walking in the Spirit when they go do some evil? You see how simple this is? Your actions have to change. You can't keep living like you always live just because I've now got the blood of Christ that has been applied to me. I'm filled with the Spirit of God so I can live any way I want to now. No, you can't. The investment that's been given you is there to restrain you. It's not there to liberate you to do whatever you want. It's there to restrain you from doing things that would hurt you. And it's like a child. We've got a little fence. You might call it a fence. I don't know what they call it. A play yard, I guess is what they call them that we've got for Elijah that is about 20 or 30 feet around that thing and you can put it in a big circle. And he's talking about it back there. It's got little rails. It's like a fence. Now that's necessary because there's a lamp in there that he's getting strong enough like Samson that he'll pull it down on himself. He just will. It's a tall lamp. There's a fireplace in there. He's determined to pull the grate down on and see what's inside, which will land on his little head. And there are some restraints that are necessary. Don't get upset about it, honey. There are some restraints that are necessary to protect him. Do you think I'm restraining him because I want to punish him? Elijah, you've been crying a lot today because I know you've been not feeling good. So you're going to sit inside the fence for the rest of the day as a little toddler. Of course not. You know why he's inside that area when there's an environment in which he could hurt himself? To protect him. Do you know why God gives us the regulations he gives us in his word? To protect us. That's not the only reason. It's also to produce something in us. And once the work of the Word and the Spirit produce everything that's necessary in us, there's no regulations needed anymore. It's no different than a child. 
Once a child realizes because they've touched the burner or they've knocked their head enough times, they'd realize the danger. But you don't know that as a child, do you? When I was a child, I spake as a child. This is 1 Corinthians 13. What's the subject of that chapter? Love. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But now that I'm a man, I put away childish things because I've grown up to the point where I value God. I value what he wants from my life. And I've developed certain things in my spirit that draw me towards the good and they keep me from the evil. I don't have to have a border there anymore for me to figure out where the line's at. I'm as far from the line as I can get and I'm drawing closer to God all the time like this beautiful song. Draw me nearer, nearer, precious Lord. Isn't that a strange thing to sing when so much the Christian faith thinks you only need to be drawn near once? Why keep drawing me nearer then? If you only have to be drawn near to the cross one time, Why write a song that says, draw me nearer? And a bunch of Christians are singing it. Because we have to constantly be drawn nearer. We have to get close as we can to Christ. We've got to develop everything we can of His Spirit. We don't have all that when we first encounter Him, when we first meet Him. It's got to be developed in us. These fruits of the Spirit don't get applied to you by osmosis or some other form where it just trickle-down effect, so to speak, and suddenly you've got them. They get applied to you through pressure and the operation of the work of God. We're His workmanship. He's working on us to fill us with the qualities we need so that all of our works will be good works. that what it said? His workmanship, that we might do good works? That we'll be furnished to be able to do good works? So, can you be in the Spirit and still be carrying on the works of the flesh? Of course not. How in the world do you think you're in the Spirit if you're doing the works of the flesh? The last thing we want to do is think we can work in the flesh and be in the Spirit. Had somebody ask this question, what it really means to be in Christ. You know, it's the dead in Christ that are going to rise first. And that isn't just some poetic statement. There's something very important in that little statement in Christ. You're not rising in that resurrection if you're not truly in Christ. But what does it mean to truly be in Christ? What does it mean to truly be in the Spirit? It's not really any different. There's some slight differences there, but it's almost synonymous. If you're truly in Christ, you'd be in the Spirit. If you're fully in Christ, you'd be in the Spirit. You'd be walking in the Spirit. You'd be led of the Spirit. You'd be living in the Spirit. And if you're living in the Spirit, can you still be doing the works of the flesh? No. You can be wrestling still, but do you realize every time you're wrestling and you submit to God, right then you're being led of the Spirit? But if you wrestle and then the next thing you do is submit to the flesh, you're being led by the flesh? So until it comes to the point where you're no longer submitting to the flesh, you're not fully in the Spirit. You're just partially in the Spirit and temporarily in the Spirit, so to speak. If you're developing the fruits of the Spirit within, wouldn't they change and control all of your external actions without? Do you think you can have the fruits of the Spirit and still have a bunch of foul actions? Of course you couldn't. Just read the list of the fruits of the Spirit. Who could have those qualities in their life and carry on a bunch of foul, nasty things? We need to walk in the Spirit. We need to be led of the Spirit. We need to live in the Spirit. We need to have all the things that are necessary for the Spirit to complete its work in us. The other passage that goes along with the subject we're talking about this afternoon is Philippians, the second chapter. That's the 12th and 13th verse, Sister Heather, where it talks about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's again that combined effort that's going on. We're working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. He's doing some work within us. And as he does the work within us, the qualities inside of us are changed. Look, you need to be kinder. You need to be gentler. You need to have more meekness. We need to have more love. The more we develop those qualities, the more our actions will match them. 
If you've got a meek spirit, are you going to get upset when somebody does something that might humiliate you? Just think through some of the very simple practical things. If you've got a kind heart and you have a kindness that is a spiritual kindness, not just kindness to your friends, but you have a kindness to everybody. You're a kind-spirited individual. Kindness is much deeper than that, by the way, in this passage. But let's just simplify it. Do you really think you're going to be mean and rude to people if that's the type of spirit you have, that you're just kind? What are some of the other qualities in the fruits of the Spirit? Temperance. Now, by the way, that can mean several things, but let's just think about it in its English sense of the word. Do you think if you have a temperate spirit that you're going to fly off the handle every time anything happens? Do you think you're going to throw temper tantrums all the time? And every time your button gets pushed, you're upset and mad at the church or mad at God or mad at your neighbor or mad at your spouse? Do you really think you can have those kind of qualities and continue acting in some kind of a foul-spirited way? Probably one of the most important, of course, is love that it starts with. If you've got love, that almost nullifies any work of the flesh you could do if you've truly got love. That's why Jesus used that when they tried to corner him with what's the greatest commandment. And he said, there's not one, there's two. You've got to love God. You've got to love your neighbor. Because if you've got both of those down, you really almost can't do anything. You've got to have a pretty good knowledge of God, though, to understand that when you love God, that controls your actions. We're living, I said, because of our faith. God gave us spiritual life because of faith. But we've got to live by our faith. Our faith has to keep us in a state of spiritual life with God. And we've got to let our faith control our actions. Our faith just can't be a belief system that we put on the shelf whenever we want to do something we shouldn't be doing. If I believe in the Bible, I believe in the Word of God. I sure do. Let me go ahead and put that on the shelf now, though, because I've got some relationship I want to get in that's an inappropriate relationship, some immoral condition or some activity. And it's a sad state of affairs that we've come to where Christianity can be inclusive of people that aren't really Christian. You know how inclusive Christianity is now? Now, doesn't that sound good? We want to be inclusive. Don't we want everybody included? I want everybody included, but they have to be included in a real way. Meaning we don't just put a blanket around them and say, you're part of the kingdom of God. I know you are an absolutely foul individual that is doing evil and had no intent of repenting of it. But praise God, you did pray the sinner's prayer with me, so you're part of the kingdom of God. You better be careful who you include in God's kingdom, but you better also be careful who you exclude. Let's live right, saints. Let's live our faith. Let's let our faith direct our actions. Let's let our faith direct our steps. Paul made that statement at least three times in the New Testament that he quoted from Habakkuk, the second chapter of Habakkuk, the fourth verse, when he talks about the just shall live by his faith. Paul mentions that in the 10th chapter of Hebrews in the 38th verse when he says, Now the just live by faith. But listen to what he follows that with. Now if any man draw back unto perdition. You know how many people use that verse? And they say the just lives because he had faith. He came to the cross, he had faith, and now he lives and will live forever. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Do you have some expectation that the world to come is going to be filled with people who God's soul has no pleasure in? Is that what we're thinking? We're thinking that the world to come is going to be populated by a bunch of folks God can't stand? You know, it's His world, right? And you do know that it's going to be a world wherein dwelleth righteousness, unrighteousness, good things, bad things, sweet, bitter, all those will be included, right? It's a world wherein dwelleth righteousness. You think there's going to be people in that world who God's soul doesn't have any pleasure in? The just have to live by faith, and what causes them to live by faith will keep them from drawing back. I'm going to let my faith direct my steps. I'm going to let my faith direct my actions. If the world is doing something evil, 
I'm going to go to my faith for an answer. My faith says that's wrong, so I won't do it. Now look, not just won't do it, I won't support it. I won't allow it to be talked about in a positive way in my environment. Don't you think that that's any less evil when you sit there and allow someone to tell some foul thing or promote some foul, evil thing, and you sit there while they're promoting it to some poor individual that may be a fool, spiritually speaking, and they are staining that person's thinking, and you sit back and say, well, I've got to live my faith individually, but whatever happens to other people, do you realize how dangerous that is to allow that to continue? Do you know their blood could be on your hands? You let somebody be affected by some foul, evil thinking, and you just sit back? God respects those who hold a standard of righteousness. God respects those who stand for him. Let's stand for God. Who knows what you can leave as a legacy if you'll stand for God. I've told you when I've given you my personal testimony, the largest reason that I am standing in this pulpit right now and that God has allowed me to have any truth and that God has allowed me to have any anointing and that God has allowed me to have any authority and God has allowed me to have any influence in his kingdom, the principal reason is because I'm a legacy. I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's like somebody inheriting a great inheritance from a father or a grandfather. I didn't deserve that. God honored the stand of righteousness that men before took. And he took that and poured that cup of mercy down onto me. And here I stand, the beneficiary of a cup of mercy. We can do that for our children and grandchildren, saints. There is nothing more important that we can leave behind for this assembly than to pour out a cup of mercy on the generation to come. We better try to do that. Leave a legacy in their life that they'll remember that's a godly legacy. You know, almost any church, you track it back long enough, you'll find ungodliness in the legacy. You know what the blessing about that is? In the opposite sense, some of those churches still stand and are mighty churches now. You know why? Because God loved the people and he broke that line of a spiritual curse and set up a spiritual blessing. You know, God doesn't have to do that. Sometimes people can do things that'll bring judgment on a people. And God can just step away and say, I'm done with that. Isn't it incredible? And you could apply this, saints, to any church that you have ever known. I'd imagine almost any church that's been in existence has had problems in their past somewhere. Some leadership or someone else, even if it's just someone in the pews, did some terrible thing that brought a bad mark on the church. Don't get caught up in that. You know, we can get in the spirit. Listen, we can get in an attitude and say, well, somebody 40, 50 years ago that was a minister did such and such, and we're living there still. That's who we are. Oh, no, it's not. Your interaction, your relationship with God is between you and God. He uses men to help us, but you're not the child of that individual in the sense that you can't break that legacy if there was some bad legacy in your past. You can break free from that, and God can give you other shepherds after his own heart. My intent isn't to stress that from my standpoint, but I hope he's done it. I hope I can be a shepherd after the Lord's heart for you. I hope I can. I'll do everything in my power to be a shepherd after the Lord's heart, saints. I've watched the damage done by people that have not held their integrity. You men need to hold your integrity. We've got a variety of age range across here. Isn't that nice to see almost every age range represented on this platform? Hold your integrity, brethren. There's things that'll pull on you. It may not be something immoral. It could be something else that'll pull on you. Get your spirit wrong or get your attitude wrong or tie you up in some state of mind you shouldn't be in. We've got to hold our integrity. God can do far more with a clean people than he'll ever do with an unclean. And eventually the unclean will be thrown to the side. Paul made this statement in Hebrews 10, where he said that his soul will have no pleasure in any man that draws back. In the very next verse, we are not of them which draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What do you mean believe to the saving of the soul, Paul? I thought my soul was already taken care of. 
I thought I couldn't go back into perdition. We're not of them that draw back into perdition. Our belief is going to hold on until God's done His whole work. That's what your faith's going to have to do, brethren, sisters. That's what your faith's going to have to do. It's going to have to hold on to God until God's done with you. If that didn't have the statement on the front end of that verse, you might interpret the latter end a little different. You might just say that just means when we believed it was the saving of our soul. That's not what it says. It says we're not of them who draw back, meaning right now we already believed and we're not going to draw back because we're going to hold on to our belief until we receive the fullness of our salvation. Praise his holy name. Paul used it again in Romans 1 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I started quoting here just a little bit ago. That might be the 16th verse, Sister rather. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Who knows the next statement? Sister Heather can put it up, but who knows it? You should be able to quote these. These are important verses. Maybe Heather's not going to put it up for you. (laughs) She might have thought I was testing you and waiting for me. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Here's an interesting statement. From faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What do you mean from faith to faith? Oh, you know how many interpretations I've heard of that? That meant the faith of the Old Testament that expanded in the faith of the New Testament. Oh, I wouldn't argue that didn't happen. But look at the context. It's talking about the just living by his faith. You know, the just lives by his faith. I've got a measure of faith. I need to increase my faith. You increase your faith, it'll make you more obedient to God. You say, I've got more confidence in God today than I had yesterday. If your faith was a static thing that occurs once, it couldn't increase at all. But it can increase. I had faith and I was delivered from my sins. And my faith is growing in the God of my salvation. Praise His holy name. And I'm increasing in faith. And because I'm increasing, I'm living by that faith. My faith is directing my actions. My faith is directing my life. I'm increasing in faith. It's growing in me. Can you imagine an individual where that faith grows to its full maturity? There are men in the Old Testament who had an incredible measure of faith. I started by listing men like Noah that was willing to work for what could have been, if we tie the verses in the Old and the New Testament together, 120 years he might have been preaching to that generation and working to build that ark. And yet nobody listened to him but his own family, saints. But he did not waver in his faith. That took a powerful faith. These men and women of God in the Old Testament kept going. Even when their faith didn't reach its fruition, they held to their faith. For therein, it says here in Romans 1.17, is the righteousness of God revealed. And by the way, when it says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed, it's in the present tense. Therein is the righteousness of God being revealed. Right now, while our faith is increasing, God's righteousness is being revealed in the present. Do you realize right now in this service, if God anoints the words that I'm speaking or anyone else might speak in this service, and it helps to increase your faith, right now, presently, your faith is growing. For therein is the righteousness of God being revealed. You know why it's being revealed? Because as your faith increases under the anointing of His Word and the work of His Spirit, He's revealing His righteousness in you right now. It's not a past tense thing. He's showing His righteousness and He's doing it right now. This present generation can show the righteousness of God to this world. We don't have to just look back and say, I had an experience with God. We can be having experiences with God right now. God can touch our minds right now. 
God can touch our thinking right now. God can change our carnal life and our ways right now. We don't have to be prisoners to where we met Christ and say, well, I met Him and He freed me, but now I'm in a mess again. You can be changed, saints. Metamorphosed from one state to another. You can go through a process that your faith grows and expands. And by the way, faith isn't the only thing that grows that way. Grace grows that way as well. Which means there's a dynamic operation between those two things and other elements as well where God gives more grace. God applies more of His mercy. You'll need less of the application of God's mercy the further applications of grace He gives you because what He's doing in your life will cause you to grow past the point of a necessity of mercy. But you're always going to need more grace until you reach that place of overcoming where you no longer require an application of grace because you're living as a vessel of grace. The grace of God has completed its work in you. And you're standing there, an example of the grace of the living God shining out through a human vessel. Praise His holy name, saints. I'll tell you, that'll set the enemy to flight. When Gideon went down against the enemy, he told those men to take a firebrand, essentially, and take a vessel of clay and put it over that firebrand and take that in one hand, your trumpet in the other, and go down against the enemy and strike that and break that vessel. And it brought complete confusion to that enemy. God is going to have a people like that one day where the flesh has been taken away and all there is is the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shining out of the life of an individual. It will put the enemy to flight. The just will live by his faith. And that's how the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is revealed because we're living by our faith. Have you thought about that? When we take what God gives us, the grace that he applies to our life, and we grow in that, and we use it, and God applies more, it isn't grace that comes from within us. It's grace that comes from without. The Spirit doesn't come from within us either, saints. It comes from without. God has to keep applying it. He gives you what's necessary to do what he wants you to do, and then he gives you another application. And you ought to pray, God, give me a greater vision too. Tell me what to do with what you give me. Strength isn't just for the sake of showing it off. There's a reason God gives us these things. It's to produce something. You know what the great failure of much of Pentecostalism has been? They have used the Spirit of God to create excitement rather than transformation. That's what much of Pentecost has done. They've used the Spirit of God to create a spirit of emotionalism and excitement. And then you wonder why there's so much moral failure. You know why there's moral failure? Let me show you a simple psychological point. You get emotionally stirred up too much. Your emotions are too close to the surface of your skin. There's no telling what things could attract you or pull you because you're just so emotionally stirred all the time. You can do evil in the sense of anger or lust or anything else because your emotions are always being worked up. You know God's trying to bring our emotions into balance. The reason for the work of the Spirit in the church is not just to get us excited. It's to change us. Sometimes we'll feel excited by the change. But you know, I've seen people come down in a prayer line, get very excited with no intent whatsoever to change. I've talked to you about that before. I've seen people get very worked up in a prayer line. They shout and they jump or they cry or they go through whatever contortions emotionally they're going to do. And they don't have one bit of an intent to change whatever it is they're doing. That's not what the Spirit's for. The Spirit is to give you the power to overcome. It's grace to overcome that God applies to our lives, saints. That's 2 Peter 3.18. I've been quoting all throughout there where he says, Grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Well, hold on, Brother Bear. I've heard ministers say that you can't grow in grace. All the grace you'd ever need was given at the cross. 
then why tell people to grow in grace? There was a greater gift given at the cross than any gift that's ever been given in the history of creation. But that gift was given so that God could apply measures of his power to a people and continue to work in them. It was given so he could pour out the Holy Ghost. It was given so he could apply grace to individuals' lives under a blanket of mercy. Thank God for his work. Thank God if you have a vision of it. It'd be a terrible thing, saints, for you to have a limited vision where you don't understand what it is all God wants to do and you're sitting back there having only come part of the way towards your destination. Another one of these things I've told you many times through the years. I've had this argument given to me a few times. We don't want to do more than God requires. If all you have to do is make one claim of faith and that's all that it takes, then it's a terrible thing if you do more than that. A terrible thing if you require any righteousness. And I've said this whenever this has come up. Which would you fear more? You go before the throne of the living God and you stand up there and God says, you did not do what I asked you to do. Or he says, you did a whole lot more than I asked you to do. Which would you rather hear? Let me tell you something. I can give you scripture after scripture why your faith has to grow, why you've got to progressively become more mature in your spiritual walk. That it isn't just where you start at as a baby. You've got to grow to full manhood, so to speak. But saints, I can give you the simplest logical reason that I've given many times through the years. If I'm going to stand before a holy God, I would rather have him say to me, you did a whole lot of things I didn't even require than for him to say you did not do what I required. That's not real complicated, now is it? Do you think God is going to be upset with you because you held to a higher standard? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hold myself to the highest standard I can hold myself accountable to. And if that standard is what God requires, which is what I believe, and if it's something I'm incapable of doing by myself, God will provide what is necessary in my life for me to reach that place. Don't you think? If that's the standard God requires, that God won't make up the difference if I'm incapable of achieving it, and you are incapable of achieving it alone. Thank God for the additions of grace, for the fact that we can grow in grace, that we can grow in faith. Not just live by the fact that we've had faith, we can live by our faith. Those are two different things, saints. You can live by faith. You're alive right now if you've had faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection. You're alive right now if you've had the Spirit fill you. Those are acts that faith created. But you have to live by faith as well in the sense that you're living in the present by your faith. You can't throw your faith over the side of the boat because you had it sometime in the past. That makes faith, listen, this is a biblical statement, shipwreck. You you make faith shipwreck, you get in the boat and then you could care less about watching the boat. You know, a boat has a shipwreck. One of the reasons is you're not paying attention to what's going on around you and you run to a rock or some other ship. You don't want your faith to be shipwreck. I'm applying this in a practical way. It means something slightly different in that context. Don't make your faith shipwreck, saints. Once you've had faith, hold on to the wheel. And I know anyone that's lived any amount of time under the covering of God's work and his operation knows that there's times the winds blow too hard for you to hold that wheel. But that's when the hands of the mighty God of Jacob come down over top of your hands and he turns and holds that wheel for you. Listen, we cannot do this by ourselves, but we can do it through Christ. We can't do it by ourselves, but the arm of the Lord is a strong agent, saints. There's nothing too big for the arm of the Lord. And when our arms start to grow weak with the effort that we've taken of holding ourselves on our course, the hands of the mighty God of Jacob will reach down out of heaven and take hold of the wheel. Praise His holy name. You appreciate the God that we serve? You appreciate the grace that He affords His people? You appreciate the mercy? 
My Lord, grace wouldn't do you any good without mercy because if you were still under judgment, what good does it do for him to keep on giving you power to live better? You were already guilty of something that needed to be punished. But that mercy washes away the guilt and the grace gives you the power not to get into a state where you're going to have to be found guilty again. What a God we serve. Look, I don't make God a one-dimensional God, saints. I don't think he just is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace as well. He was wonderfully merciful. No greater act of mercy than when he took his son and shed his blood for you and I and applied it to our lives. There's no greater act of mercy. But God just didn't take care of that. He's going to change us as well through the work of grace in our lives. Praise his holy name. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. This is why I've said what I said today. I heard this little phrase in this verse. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Isn't that just like God? Lord, I love you and I'll do whatever you ask. You've done everything for me and I'll do anything you ask of me. I am yours, Lord. If it hurts me, I'm yours. I'll swear to my own hurt and change not. I'll make a covenant with you and nothing will turn me from that covenant. And you start to grow in your appreciation and love and gratitude for what God's done. And you come to a deeper conception of God and the grace of God. And you know what that'll create? A greater love. Isn't that incredible? Our finite knowledge of God can be increased the closer relationship we maintain with Him. And as we get closer to Him, we learn more about Him. And the more we learn, the greater our love develops. And the longer we serve Him, the sweeter He grows, saints.